Many people say they know Jesus, but all too often they know about him, but they don't truly know him. For this reason, Dr. David Jeremiah wrote The Jesus You May Not Know, which provides insight about his eternal nature and role on earth and in heaven. This book is yours with a gift of any amount to Turning Point. And for donations of $75 or more, you'll receive the book, He Is Bookmark, Study Guide, and CD or DVD album. Go to davidjeremiah.ca. In his darkest moment of doubt, convinced that God might have forgotten him, King David hid in a cave. Are you sometimes tempted to visit that cave? Today on Turning Point, Dr. David Jeremiah shares the important truth that no cave, either literal or figurative, could ever hide you from God's love. From the series, When Your World Falls Apart, here's David to introduce Praying Under Pressure. Well, friends, we are studying the Psalms together here on Turning Point. Our study falls under the heading of When Your World Falls Apart. And uh, that's because these psalms are the ones that God used to encourage my heart when I was going through cancer some years ago. And the psalms became um, the origin of a book called A Bend in the Road. And then that book was changed in its title to When Your World Falls Apart. So these lessons are from that book. And uh, today, I have to tell you, this is perhaps my favorite of all the psalms. Psalm 142 is an incredible journey with David through all the things that were bothering him and all the things that God did to help him. Here in this psalm, we have a very detailed record of everything David felt because of his discouragement and depression and everything he did in response to it. If you want a formula to work through your difficult days, you won't find a better one than Psalm 142, and we're going to study it for the next two days here on Turning Point. It is the centerpiece of this series, and you don't want to miss any of the teaching of this incredible psalm. We've called it Praying Under Pressure. We'll get to that in just a moment, but first, I want to remind you that uh, time is moving quickly toward our tour to Israel. March the 12th through the 22nd, we'll be visiting Israel with a whole bunch of people. It'll be the largest tour group we have ever conducted, and um, some people are going to wait too long, and then there won't be any room. We're not limited by uh, airfare. We're not limited by buses on the ground. Uh, The tour is limited by hotel rooms in the places where we're going. And uh, we're moving toward uh, the fulfillment of some of those room allocations. And so we can only accept passengers when we are granted additional rooms, which happens a little bit, but not a lot toward the end. So I'm just telling you, this is the way it works. And we have a fresh reminder of it because uh, this is what happened in our tour to Alaska. Um, We filled up all the rooms that were allotted to us on the ship, and then they were gone. And we had a number of people who couldn't go because they waited too long. And I hope you won't do that. If you have intentions to join us in Israel, it's time for you to make your decision and uh, get your reservation in so that we can prepare adequately and take good care of you during our time together. Well, here we go. This is my favorite psalm from the series, When Your World Falls Apart, Psalm 142, Praying Under Pressure. I am not surprised when people come up to me and tell me that King David is one of their favorite people in the Bible. He is one of mine as well, even though it has nothing to do with the 
similarity of our names. One of the reasons I think we love David in the Old Testament and Peter in the New Testament is because they seem to touch life at more places than any other of the characters that we study. Someone has suggested that King David is a man for all seasons because his story mirrors the expressions and feelings of our own hearts no matter where we happen to be. He was a man of faith and a man of great vision, but he was also a man who struggled with discouragement and with depression. During his days as a fugitive from great pressure by King Saul, David faced many low days and many difficult hours. In fact, students of the book of Psalms believe that David wrote at least eight different Psalms while he was running away from Saul. The superscription over our Psalm today is very clear. It says a prayer of David when he was in the cave. And there is another Psalm which we shall look at briefly at the end of this message that is also exactly like this. It has a superscription about where David was when he wrote it. Psalm 57 reads like this, a miktam or teaching psalm of David when he fled from Saul into the cave. He was running away from the most powerful man in his world, outnumbered most of the time and armed not even close to the armament that was in the hands of his enemy. And he has finally found a place where he can get away from it all and pour out his heart to God and sort out his life. He has found a cave. We might call it the cave of discouragement. And many of us, including the one who speaks to you, have visited that cave on occasion. Sometimes things get so difficult for us. Sometimes things are so tough that we begin to think that God has forgotten us and that he doesn't care. And when we examine David's experience, we learn, first of all, that we are not alone in our troubles. One of the reasons why we turn often to the Psalms is because as we read the Psalms, we all of a sudden begin to realize that somebody else before us, in fact, a long time before us, has felt many of the same emotions that we feel. You cannot read the book of Psalms without finding somewhere along the way a word that fits the situation that you face in your life. How thankful we should all be that David preserved all of this information for us. He wrote down his thoughts in a journal. And he teaches us the value of writing out our thoughts. That's been kind of a little pet project to try to encourage all of you to take some time periodically to journal your thoughts and your prayers before God. But David went beyond simple journaling. He didn't just record for us the events of his life and a few of his prayers. He wrote out his prayers to God and he described the working of God in his life so that you can actually chart the course of David as he moves through the problems of his life and comes out on the other side victoriously. As we chart his flight away from Saul, we discover that the cave into which he has fled is the cave of Abdullam. There are two caves in David's life. One is the cave of Adullam, which is the source of this particular psalm, which we're studying today. The other is the cave of Engede, which was the place where David cut off the skirt of Saul's robe and mentioned to him later that he had been close enough to take his life. Now, one of the beauties of the psalms is putting them together with the historical narratives in the Old Testament books of Samuel and finding out where the psalm fits in the life of David. 
And I can't be absolutely certain, but I believe I know where this psalm fits. And I won't ask you to turn back to it because I want you to stay right with me. But you can read with me the words of 1 Samuel chapter 22, verses 1 and 2. And then you will see where this psalm fits into the life of David. David therefore departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. Now watch carefully. And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was discontented gathered unto him, so he became captain over them, and there were about 400 men with him. Now most scholars believe that King Saul had levied a heavy tax on the people of Israel, and that many of these people who went down to the cave of Adullam to be with David were discontented and in debt because they were victims of high taxation, struggling for their very existence. Many were no doubt old friends of David who resorted there to help him. But as word got out, others decided to join David in this cave. In fact, in the next chapter of 1 Samuel, you'll discover that the number grew from 400 to 600. So this is a growing clan down there in the cave of Adullam. And of course, this wasn't just your one-man cave. This was a huge cavern 40 feet opening, they tell me, 20 feet high to walk in the door. So here is this man who's trying to get away from his problems and to get away from Saul and get away from life. He finally finds a place where he can resort and all of a sudden he looks up and these people start coming. And I want you to notice carefully with me how the Bible describes them. They are everyone who was a debtor and everyone who was distressed and everyone who was discontented. Now, when I go to the cave for my time of discouragement, if those words describe you, don't come and see me. (laughs) I can't imagine what this must have been like for David when he looked up already in his misery and began to realize what was happening. The off-scouring of Israel was beginning to gather unto him in the cave of Adullam. Someone has suggested that David, leading this ragtag group of friends, became like the Robin Hood of his day. W. Graham Scroggie, who is a writer of commentaries on the Old Testament, has this to say about the men who resorted to David. He said, what a crew. The three D's have formed many of an assembly since then. The debtors, the distressed, and the discontented. And he said they're very hard to get on with. They're very hard to get along with. And so man like David would feel very lonely in the midst of them. As he sat in that cave, David had plenty of time to think about his walk with God, and he probably went into the cave to be alone, wanting to get away from everyone. Instead, he found himself surrounded by the distress of Israel, and taking a hard look at his life, he wrote his thoughts and his prayers in his journal. Now, one of the things I like about David is he's an emotional person. I know that some people think as Christians we should never be emotional. We should always be kind of the same. Kind of vanilla, if you know what I mean. But David expressed his emotions in strong words. And as he describes for us in this entry into his journal what he's feeling at this time, he leaves no doubt as to the distress of his soul. He begins by pointing out how disoriented he is. He says at the beginning of this passage that his spirit was overwhelmed within him. Verse 3. The Hebrew words in that phrase literally mean in the muffling of my spirit. 
He had come to the place where his powers of judgment had been so weakened that he did not know what to do. In other words, he felt like a flood was rushing in upon him and he could barely stand up against the flood. Like he was trying to move against the current and there was no way he could make any progress. That's the picture of disorientation. He was being hunted by the king. He was surrounded by everyone who was hurting. He was so encumbered with problems that he didn't know what to do first. And so he is feeling this anguish in his life. And if you read his story, you know that he has just recently come from a serious mistake where the inhabitants of the village of Nob had all been killed because he had gone out of the will of God for a period of time. And King Saul had the entire city killed because they had taken care of David in his runaway from the king. He had all of these emotions going through his mind. And I can visualize him, if you'll allow me a little sanctified imagination. He's sitting there in the cave, and he's got his head in his hands. And he's trying to sort through all of this. He looks up for a minute and sees all the people that have come, and he puts his head back down in his hands. And he says, Lord God, what am I going to do? Disoriented. And then as you continue to read the scripture, you discover that he has another emotion that's very much a part of his life. He feels deserted. This next verse is one of the saddest verses in the Bible, in my estimation. Verse 4 says this, I looked on my right hand, and behold, there was no man that would know me. Refuge failed me, for no man cared for my soul. This is the same David who wrote in Psalm 16 and verse 8, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. At one time, David felt like no matter where he was and what he was doing, the Lord was always before him. But now the experiences of life has so overwhelmed him that as he sits alone in this cave, perhaps sequestered away from the rest of the men, he feels like there's not anybody who really cares about him. He cannot find the Lord at his right hand. And it's strange for me to read these words when we have just discovered that he's in this rather small dwelling for a large group of people. He's surrounded by 400 men and yet he's alone. How many of you know that being alone is possible in the midst of a crowd? The Bible doesn't say that there was nobody around him. The Bible says no one knew him nor cared for his soul. He looked on his right hand where he would have expected to find an advocate or a friend, and there was no one. Problems have a tendency to isolate us. Do you know that? I don't know how the rest of you men deal with the issues of life and the problems that you face, but I'm one of those male creatures who has a tendency to turn inward when problems come, to get quiet, to just kind of bury it all down in here, not want to talk to anyone. We build a shell around ourselves thinking we're the only ones with the difficulties. And the more we think about it, the more certain we are that no one else understands. I think about times I wished I could go and talk with another pastor and tell them about some of the things I was struggling with. But I would think about doing it and then I would think, well, what will they think? I'm supposed to know how to do these things. Or what will they say? And so you just keep it all inside. Alexander McLaren, one of the great writers about scripture describes it this way. He says, the soul that has to wade through deep waters usually has to do it alone. We have companions in joy, but in sorrow, we have to face things by ourselves. 
And Ella Wheeler Wilcox wrote these famous lines which you have heard before. Laugh and the world laughs with you, but weep and you weep alone. There's something about problems that drive us into a feeling of being deserted. Now, we usually are not. It's usually what we think. We're like Elijah who thought he was the only prophet left who believed in God. And God had to remind him that there were just a few more than the one he thought was there. But David felt deserted. And then notice in verse 6, he feels depressed. He uses an expression in his prayer. He says, I am brought very low. I know that this is a touchy subject among some Christians, that a Christian could ever be depressed. I've actually heard preachers preach that if you're depressed, you can't be a Christian because Christians don't get depressed. But I don't know what they do with the word of God because as I read the scripture, I read about uh, Elijah who was depressed, Jonah who was depressed, and Moses who faced depression. And here we have King David, a man after God's own heart, in depression. And the word that he uses for depression is the word for indentation. He equates this word with his soul. He says, I've got an indentation in my soul. I'm I'm depressed. I don't know if you've ever talked with depressed people, but as a pastor on occasion, I've had a chance to counsel with people going through depression. And I know what a heavy burden it is to feel that low in your spirit. I've known people who have ended their lives because as they looked out into the future, they have been so filled with despair that life did not seem worth living anymore. David was depressed like that. All of his hope and joy were gone. His thoughts had turned inward. King Saul's harassment was no longer the problem. It was David's own heart that had become the problem. He had allowed what had happened to him in his circumstances to drive him inward and not to sense the presence of God in his life. I remember telling you when I began this series on the Psalms about the depression that Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great London preacher, used to face. I was reminded that uh, when I was in seminary, I was given the two little copies of his books, the lectures to my students. And I looked at those recently and I remembered that there was a chapter in his lectures to his students and the title of the chapter was, The Minister's Fainting Fits. I remember when I got those books, that was the first chapter I read because I couldn't imagine what would be in that chapter. But in the chapter, Charles Spurgeon says this, fits of depression come over most of us Usually cheerful as we may be, we must at intervals be cast down. The strong are not always vigorous, the wise not always ready, the brave not always courageous, and the joyous not always happy. There may be here and there men of iron, but surely they must worry about rust on occasion. (laughs) Hmm. See if you can think of who might have said this, a famous American leader. I am now the most miserable man living. If what I feel were equally distributed to the whole human family, there would not be one cheerful face on the earth. To remain as I am is impossible. I must die or be better. You may be surprised to know that those were the words of Abraham Lincoln, the great president of the United States. So don't tell me that people don't have depression if they're Christians or if they're people in positions of leadership. Sometimes the greater the expectation and the greater the responsibility, the greater the tendency to be depressed. He felt depressed. And then he felt defeated. Notice verse 6. He cries out in his prayer, Lord, deliver me from my persecutors, for they are stronger than I am. (laughs) Now I want you to notice what he did. David sat down in his depression and he got a yellow tablet out and he started to put things in columns. 
And he put all the things that were going for him on this column and all the things that were against him on this column. And when he got done, he could hardly think of anything in the good column and the other column was full right down to the bottom of the page. And he totaled it all up and he said, it's over, man, I'm finished. Those who are against me are greater than those who are for me. There's no hope, I'm dead. You see, when you get into depression, your ability to reason gets fuzzy and foggy and you begin to see everything through a dark lens and you can't see life as it really is and that's where David was. He'd already consigned himself to defeat in so many words. In fact, he goes on to say in verse seven that he is like in prison, that he is incarcerated by his troubles and there is no way he can get out. And he comes to this very low point in his life. But thank God he doesn't stay there. For as we have looked at the description of his discouragement, we can go back through the same psalm and see how discouragement was defeated in his life. For he went through this pattern that all of us can follow if when we get into the cave of discouragement, we will just listen with our inner ear to the word of God. Notice, first of all, he began to verbalize his problems to God. So many people say, well, I shouldn't be telling God all my problems. God already knows my problems. Before I ever ask, he knows. So why should I be telling God my problems? Well, you know what? I don't know the theological answer to that question, but I know the biblical answer. You should do it because God tells you to do it. And if that's not enough reason, I can't help you. But there are more reasons than just being obedient. If you'll look in the first verse, David uses very clear language. He says, I cry out to the Lord with my voice. (laughs) With my voice to the Lord, I make supplication. In verse five, he says, I cried to you, O Lord. And in verse six, attend to my cry. David tells God how he is feeling. He describes what is going on inside of him. When we speak our minds fully and we name the problems and the people that plague us, it is like revealing a secret to our best friend and God is there and he cares about us and we can tell him anything and we ought to tell him what's going on in our life. That's the beginning place. Well, you say, Pastor, I'm not going to bother God with, you know, God's busy. He's got a whole world to run and he doesn't care about my little problems. You keep thinking like that. You're just going to keep going deeper and deeper into the fit of depression in your life. God has said we're to cast all of our care upon him. We're to bring him our burdens and we're to tell the Lord what is in our heart. And when we refuse to do that, we short circuit the healing process that he wants to bring about within us. I was traveling somewhere and I picked up the American Way flight magazine. Now I've got to tell you, there's not much redemptive in flight magazines. Every time I pick up one, I discover they have replaced one more page of text with pages of advertisements. Have you noticed that? It's like going to a shopping mall on the airplane. But tucked in between all of the ads in this particular issue was a little article that caught my attention because it had in the title of it the word journaling. And I've been collecting stuff on that subject because this is a process that has meant so much to me in in the more recent days of my life. And I began to read this written by some secular guru who's into business and and this is what he said. Now listen to this. Battling illness and pain with pen and paper may be unorthodox but it may also spell relief. 
People who write for 20 minutes a day about the traumatic events reduce their doctor's visits, improve their immune systems, and among arthritis sufferers, use less medication and have greater mobility. These are the words of James Pennebaker, PhD and professor at the University of Texas at Austin, who has conducted numerous studies on the topic. Why is there such relief? Suppressing negative emotions can weaken the immune system and arouse your fight or flight system, he wrote. Churning up blood pressure and heart rate, Writing about conflict or trauma helps organize the experience, and the net effect is that people can move beyond the stressful event. I'll tell you what, that really works. I cannot overemphasize how doing what we've been talking about helped me in one of the most difficult times in my life. Well, friends, we are just going and and having so much joy doing what we're doing and so many events that God has allowed us to do. We uh, finished Alaska. We're headed to Israel. In the meantime, we're going to be in a beautiful conference uh, setting uh, at the end of December. In the early days of January, we're going to the Caribbean. Michael Sanchez, Uriel Vega, and the Martins will be with us, and we're going to have just the greatest time together. If you uh, are interested in joining us, I hope you'll get in touch with us. You can do that at our website, davidjeremiah.org slash events, and you'll get all the information. You can make your reservation and join us as we close out the old year and begin the new year together. In the meantime, be sure to join us tomorrow, part two of Praying Under Pressure. For more information on Dr. Jeremiah's series, When Your World Falls Apart, please visit our website where you'll also find two free ways to help you stay connected, our monthly magazine, Turning Points, and our daily email devotional. Sign up today at davidjeremiah.ca slash radio. That's davidjeremiah.ca slash radio. Or call us at 800-946-4300. Ask for your copy of David's book, Sleep on This a nighttime devotional with biblical reflections to bring you peace and rest. It's yours for a gift of any amount. You can also purchase the Jeremiah Study Bible in the English Standard, New International, and New King James versions with notes and articles from Dr. Jeremiah's decades of study. Get all the details when you visit our website, davidjeremiah.ca slash radio. This is David Michael Jeremiah. Join us tomorrow as we continue the series, When Your World Falls Apart, on Turning Point with Dr. David Jeremiah. Do you long to know God better? In his book, The God You May Not Know, Pastor David Jeremiah walks readers through how to develop intimacy with God, discover his character, and encounter God's holiness. For a gift of any amount to Turning Point, you'll receive this inspiring book. Gifts of $55 or more will receive The Knowing Set, and gifts of $75 or more will receive The God You May Not Know Set. Learn more at davidjeremiah.ca. If you've enjoyed today's program with Dr. David Jeremiah, you might be interested in hearing it again at your convenience. Stay connected to Turning Point by visiting our website at davidjeremiah.ca or by downloading our free Canadian mobile app. The app can be found by searching for Turning Point Canada on your smart device app store. Create an account and order digital resources from today's program with easy one-click checkout at davidjeremiah.ca. I once heard someone ask a thought-provoking question. Does a deceived man know that he is deceived? 
By definition, deception suggests that one has been fooled or blinded to what is really true, causing us not to know that we are deceived. It's a scary idea, except for one safeguard. Those who know God can pray a prayer like King David prayed in the Old Testament. He asked God to search his heart and see if there was anything there that he himself had missed, anything to which he was blind, so he could correct it immediately. Now that's a prayer I'm confident God will always answer. This is David Jeremiah encouraging you to get on the road to new life. Discover how God sees on Route 66. Route 66, driving the word home. Log on to Route66life.com. Start your journey home today.